In the first century Palestine, it was common in that day of teaching and learning. Uh, the roles were switched. The, the rabbi would, while he taught, he would sit and the congregation would stand. And wouldn't that be cool if we reversed that? Uh, I know that you don't think that would be cool, that you would riot and loot and throw rocks and stones and take to the streets and all that stuff. We won't reverse that, but I do, even though you just sat down, I do want you to stand right back up. And let's read Ephesians chapter 1 together. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to place it on the screen, and uh, I'll read it, you follow along as I do. No, let's read it out loud together. Let's do that just like we did last week. So when you read, uh, congregationally read something, you typically go a little slower, Um, I'm a fast brain guy. I'll try to read slow. My wife's nodding in the affirmative right now. Let's read Ephesians 1. This is, these are verses 7 through 13. And redemption is our word. Last week, our word was what? Anybody remember? Propitiation. I think I just spit on the second row. Propitiation meaning atoning sacrifice. Today, our word, uh, it's redemption. Ephesians 1. Ready? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. God bless the hearing and reading of your word in Christ. Amen. Would you be seated? We're in the series, uh, as we said, Molly said it, it's called Understanding the Cross, and that's the goal. We want to bring fresh insight. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great writer, said that at times we need to be reminded and at times we need to be instructed. When I'm instructed, I learn something new. I said, I I say I I didn't know that, and I jump all over it. When I'm reminded of something, it's just important. In fact, that takes us to where we'll end our service today, this do in remembrance. We'll remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, and as a faith family, we'll take communion uh, together. Understanding the cross, we're looking at different angles. Week one, last week, we looked, as we said, at propitiation, this idea that Jesus for us is an atoning sacrifice. We considered, uh, yeah, we did it. Right here in 2017, we considered uh, briefly the wrath of God. For the only way to understand the love of God and the cross of Jesus Christ is to understand his holiness and his righteousness and that you really can't have love without anger. We talked about how that you really do want God to be an angry God. And then in many ways, we just need to leave room as we try to unravel his character and understand the mysteries. We need to leave room for that which is unfathomable and unsearchable. And in many ways, that is God's anger, um, his just hatred for the sin that hurts us, the carnage and collateral damage and the way that it divides and isolates. And then, of course, we looked at our our response to that. And today we're looking at this idea of redemption. The word redemption simply means to buy, to to purchase something. So go back with me in time. I'm just going to drop a, a few facts on you. Paul wrote this to a group of early Jesus followers in a first century 
Mediterranean world. The city was Ephesus. And Ephesus was at the time, and I'm giving you facts between, in a 200-year stretch between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. And Ephesus was the fourth largest, most populated city at the time behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. It was a dominant port city. Its harbor hosted ships that would sail the Mediterranean. It had roads that would cut the city to a major manufacturing and agricultural areas to the east. You, it was just, it was at that time just a, a hub. It was a, a city of trade. It was a place of buying and selling. It had enormous wealth and just an extensive variety of goods that could be purchased. Spices and jewelry and clothing and cosmetics and tents and, and other things. And oh, by the way, in Ephesus, you could also purchase something else. You could buy people. It was the first century epicenter of slavery in the Roman Empire. And so to appreciate this, you, you have to know that Paul is a real dude talking to real people at a real time and place. And he speaks to them about something that was right there in front of them, something they could understand. And he uses this this metaphor of redemption something has been purchased today for you note takers here's your early cue I want to give you four ideas about redemption the first idea is the need for redemption and here's a phrase I'd like you to take home with you today redemption is as powerful as slavery is awful redemption is as powerful as slavery is awful The need for redemption. To know that we need redemption, it's for us to reckon with a a word that's so abundant and so clear in our lives, unlike this magic marker that I have. There's no magic in the marker. I'm going to go red ink and we'll see if anybody can see. And I'm writing the word sin. Sin oftentimes is what's out there. Have you noticed that about the human condition? It's true in you, and unfortunately it's true in me a lot of times. When we think of sin, we think about evil, we think about what's happening out there. And can I just say to the church in 2017, I know I'm rattling some cages here, but conservative Christianity has fought a cultural war and lost. Because we've been on a moral crusade about other people's sin. And I want you today, in these moments, to think about sin as it is in here. And let me just say this. When it comes to this word, there are various degrees of sensitivity. In life, there are various degrees of sensitivity. Show of hands, how many of you, you know this, how many of you are just sensitive people? Looking for some dudes, okay? Paul, are you you sensitive? Okay, this guy goes to the gym five hours a day, and he's sensitive. Cut like a Greek god, and he's sensitive. So if Paul Wagner raised his hand, you can raise your hand, dudes. But I'm a, I am, my hand was raised, I'm a sensitive guy. Experts, people that know about church planting. They told me, Robert, you and Susan could do very well. With God's hand and his word, you could flourish. But you know what, maybe you don't need to do this, wait for it, because you're really sensitive. You're an awfully sensitive, can you stand up to the criticism? Can you take the hard things? You're awfully sensitive. That's just true in life. I'm a Mississippi State guy. I watched the Book of Manning the other night for like the third time, and I cried on the Book of Manning. Just giving some love to Ole Miss fans out there. But I'm a sensitive guy. And when it comes to sin, when it comes to sin, there's various levels 
of sensitivity. So let me say this this morning. Some of you, no doubt, you're dialed in. When I stand here and say that the world is busted up and broken, you're like, yes, it is. That's something that you don't need me to say. Let me tell you who's dialed in on this. It's sensitive people, of course, but it's also people vocationally. It's parole officers and social workers and foster parents. They're dialed in and they are the ones that are on the front lines of the fallenness of this world. We have some in our midst and you see sexual predators on the internet seeking to entice children. You know of teenagers who take the thin slice inside their inner forearm and cut because of the pain. You see bruised and broken marriages and shattered families and hearts. And you have a front row seat to that. Quickly, if you don't know, I'll tell you about pastors. I know some pastors. I am a pastor. I've been one for a long time. And pastors, similar to police officers, firefighters, paramedics, are often the first ones called to a scene. And sometimes I get a call. Sometimes they occur at 2 a.m. And sometimes all I can do is cry with somebody and hold them and hurt with the family and just wait and hope that God's redemptive power could be seen in it. We live in a busted up world. Sin has busted it up. And redemption is only as powerful as slavery is awful. And here's what sin does. The scripture teaches us. Now we're going to walk, we're going to do a few Sundays in Romans as we lead up to Easter. But sin leads to confusion. Paul tells us in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that sin blinds, it darkens. We have futility in our reasoning and our thinking. There is a, a preeminent philosophical idea in our day it's a cultural catchphrase you've seen it heard it you've spoken it you've had people tell you this it's this follow your feelings doesn't that sound good I mean you don't want to be cold and distant and detached you don't want to be aloof unemotional person feelings are good follow your feelings and if you've been at Fondren Church for any length of time and sat under my teaching, you'll know that I'll be quick to quote Jeremiah. He was a weeping prophet. He didn't grow a big church. He didn't have any fruit, but he spoke the truth of God. And he said, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Above all else, who could understand it? Be careful in following your feelings. Solomon said in Proverbs, he lived a, a, quite a life. He experienced a lot more than you and I did. And he said, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Be careful and following your feelings. You would not tell an alcoholic in the midst of a struggle to follow his feelings. You would not tell a young lady struggling with anorexia to follow her feelings. You would never tell her, well, just don't eat for seven more days. You wouldn't say that. You would love her and pray for her, the, the alcoholic and the anorexia. You would, you would tell them to push through it. I'm going to show you a photo. It's one of the great photos in sports history. Don't know if you're readily going to recognize this man. He was a, at the time, he was a medical student in Oxford, England. His name is Roger Bannister. Do you know the barrier that he broke? This was May the 6th, 1954. First human being to run a sub four-minute mile. And Roger Bannister, I was reading this week, he said it, what held him back? It was a goal that he had in front of him for some time, but what held him back, he said, was... 
What challenged him was not his legs, it was his mind. It was getting past the barrier. And ten short years later, by October of 1964, 350 other competitive runners had broken the four-hour mile. And many of you know I did it a few years ago. So he's a big hero of mine, Roger, Roger Bannister. Um, I'm lying in church, but anyway. <laughs> Spiritual truth. I think this applies to us. We, we get stuck. Sin, sin takes hold and it busts us up. And it bruises us and it leads to, to so much confusion. And we, the, the idea, the, the advice we get around us, follow your feelings, it's not really working anymore. Cicero was a philosopher and a writer in the Greek-Roman world of Paul's day. And he had a very important saying. He said that reason should direct and appetite should obey. Now we know, long after Cicero, doctors in the room can tell us, this scientists, there's, there's a little part of your brain that's on the the frontal lobe it's an isolated part of your brain that's your reason it's your logic and it helps us make decisions to rationalize to put things in order and sequence and priority we have that part of the brain it should be an important part God gave it to us to be able to reason but oftentimes we you and I get into a lot of trouble I meet bright educated people that will talk to me and sit in my office and unpack their suitcase and tell me about the pain in their lives and they followed their appetite they just followed their feelings they did what their heart told them to but the trouble with sin that is it leads us to confusion and that confusion can be it can lead to this to a life of slavery and just as humans did not know that humans could indeed run under four-minute miles a lot of us spiritually get stuck we get stuck and we think I can't get victory in this area of my life uh, there's no breakthrough there's no hope and it's just bondage and so let's flip the script literally and I want you to think not about the evil that's out there but I want you to think about you and I'm gonna write the word debt I'm not talking about your student loans your home mortgage or your capital one I'm talking about your sin I'm talking about the debt that you owe I want under debt I want to write the word said the things that you have said the tongue that little thing that gets so many of us in big trouble the Bible talks about it a lot, read Proverbs, read James, it gives death and it gives life. And for some of you, you've used your tongue maybe to get a few laugh lines, but others have been hurt. And your tongue has been used, the things you've said, you've used it to stab and to wound and to poison. Maybe it's criticizing. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe that's the environment you grew up in, so you're, it's, it's all about criticizing or complaining or exaggerating it's things that you've said and it accumulates maybe perhaps it's things that you have not said it's the conversation that you should have had some of you you're in a home or you grew up in a home where just things were just swept under the rug 
and things that really needed to be addressed lacked leadership. Nobody wanted to embrace the mantle and say, here's what needs to be talked about. And it's going to hurt for a little bit. We're going to have to walk through this chaos. We have to enter into a tunnel in order to tell the truth. But we can't have peace until the truth comes out, until we talk it through. And for you, maybe it's just things that weren't said. Encouragement not given. And you sit here this morning with regrets. And for you, your debt is things said or unsaid. Let's write another word here, the word taken. I have a friend who's a prolific writer. He wrote a book years ago. It's impacted my life. He calls it Givers, Takers, and Other Kind of Lovers. And it's really true for you and I. If you live your life more on the take side than the give side, you're going to be an empty soul, probably a lonely person. If it's mostly about what you can get, if you're taking and you're taking, and maybe you, you took stuff in Ephesians, this, this book about redemption that Paul writes to the church amid Ephesus with the slave trade, where there are slaves and prisoners and people being set free. He says in Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no more, the one who is taken, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands so that he may provide and he may have to give to those in need. Maybe you've stolen stuff from a store or you've taken someone's dignity or self-respect. Maybe you've robbed a person of their purity or teenagers. Maybe you're robbing your parents of good night's sleep. There's what we've said under debt. There's what we've taken. And then just simply what you did. We never really know when the time is right. Usually we wait before it's too late. The termites are in the timber and the house is crumbling and then we reach out for help. There's two things that make us want to change, fear and pain. Fear and pain, fear and pain. Most of the time we never speak up until there's fear or there's pain. But for some of you, listen to me, church, because we want this place to be real. It's something you did. On a business trip, spring break, when no one is looking. That's your debt. And it's bondage. It's slavery. And redemption, redemption is being bought back. Redemption is as powerful as slavery is awful. There is the need for redemption. The second thing I want to give you this morning is the cost of redemption. Go with me in your mind just briefly to an orchard, to a fruit orchard outside of a Mediterranean city called Ephesus. And in this orchard there are slaves. And there's one slave in particular. Just picture a man, dark-skinned, hard-working man doing some back-breaking labor. He's pruning a fruit tree amidst other slaves. And he hears a voice a foreman of the estate walks into the orchard and he calls out the name of that slave and he says to that slave, the owner, the owner wants to see you immediately. And he begins to tentatively make his way across the orchard and up the stone path with the foreman to see the master, to see the man who owns him. The other workers, the other slaves glance his way, they're worried and they wonder, what he's done. 
and what punishment he will receive. In his own mind, he thinks, what, what infraction might I have committed that will warrant this beating, this beat down, this punishment of some form? But as he makes his way to the palatial estate of the man who owns him, he sees the owner and he sees next to him a relative. It's his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law that he hadn't seen in four to five years. That brother-in-law is counting. He's got coins. There wasn't paper money. He was dropping some coins on the table. And he was counting aloud. And that slave removed for a moment from this back-breaking labor and the scorching sun. The pruning, the hurting of his fingers, the tiredness of his back. He sees his brother-in-law counting. 19, 20, 21, 22. 23, what's it going to cost? How many silver coins need to be dropped on the table? And after his brother-in-law finishes the dropping of the coins and the counting, the owner counts himself. There's always the count and the recount. Then the owner signs, silently signs a document. And the brother-in-law looks at the slave and he says to him, let's go home. And he's set free. I studied a lot this week to find out what slaves were worth, the buying and selling of slaves. There's a lot of vagueness to it. But there was a, a hierarchy, if you will, similar to our day. Skill, size, gender, education, family. What did it cost this slave to be bought, to be bought back? What did it cost God to buy you? Maybe we could say three large nails and a crown of thorns. We definitely need to say the blood of his son offered as a sacrifice to buy us. I sat over coffee this week with a friend and this friend reminded me of their status, their situation, their predicament. And that maybe of others and maybe of some of you. He and his wife own a home. They own two homes. They're hoping desperately to sell one. He told me the price. I thought I might be interested. He told me the price. I'm, uh, y'all don't pay me enough. And he's losing money. And he told me the value of this price. But here's what I know from friends who are in real estate. A piece of property, the worth of a piece of property, its value is only what someone is willing to pay for it. You with me? And what did Jesus pay for you? The power of redemption, right? It's only in the awfulness of our slavery and our sin and to the, to the extent that we understand that. Remember we learned last week John was the only disciple, the one Jesus, he was the only one that was at the scene. The other disciples fled. And I studied, I'm, you'd think I'd know this by now, being a pastor and studying the Bible for so long, studying history. But I learned this week that If you were around the cross, some people just observed the crucifixion. They weren't vindictive. They had no angle or ego or agenda in the game, but they would just observe a crucifixion. Y'all, it's brutal. And many people would throw up or pass out. And Peter, the one who boasted about being Jesus' main guy, the one who denied him three times, and fled was not there, but later Jesus would redeem him. And Jesus, Peter would say this about redemption. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. I love this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, like that slave we talked about, 
that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Leave that up for a second, please. You were redeemed from the what? From the empty way of life. Let me tell you about my life real quick. I've never had a person, never had a man approach me and say, man, Robert, pastor, I'm chasing the American dream, bigger house, nicer car, trophy wife, exotic vacations, all the toys and trinkets. Oh, oh, by the way, can you talk to me about propitiation? I've never had anybody say, man, hey, I'm, I'm hustling, getting some things done, making a move. Hey, oh, by the way, can we get together tomorrow and talk redemption? I've never, ever had that happen. Don't expect it to happen. But I've sat with plenty of people and plenty of men who said, Robert, it's just empty. There's a way of life. And now I'm blank years old. And the things that I've said, the things I've taken, the things that I did, it's a debt and I'm enslaved. And I feel empty. And the message of Jesus is that you have been bought. What is the price? His son. The shed blood for you. There's the need for redemption. There's the cost of redemption. Thirdly, note takers, there's the motivation for redemption. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 are two of the most famous Bible verses in the book. For by what? For by grace. Who's thankful today for grace? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Gospel, the gospel is grace, and grace is a gift, and a gift has to be received, and you and I don't receive gifts very well. For to receive gifts, Jesus would teach in the greatest sermon ever preached that we would need to mourn, we would need to be bankrupt, we would need to be merciful, we would need to be pure in heart, we would need to come to him, and we would need to let go. And the reason it's hard to receive is we don't have empty hands, and the reason we don't have empty hands is because we're holding on to stuff that we don't need to be holding on to. The forgiveness of sins. It's by grace. And here's the thing. Grace is a gift. It's not a reward. And you, you and I, we think reward. We get reward. We don't naturally get grace. So let me talk, let me call a few people out. If you grew up in a legalistic family, this is hard for you to put your brain around. It's hard to put your brain around this if you grew up in a Catholic family. It's hard to put your brain around this if you grew up in a Methodist family. It's hard to put your brain around this if you grew up in a Baptist family. It's hard to put your brain around this if you grew up as an American. It's hard to put your brain around this if you grew up. It's just hard. This is counter to the way we think. But God's motivation is His grace. His grace. It's our faith and our receiving that as a gift beyond the need for redemption and the cost of redemption and the motivation for giving for for redemption is lastly it's the response it's our response it's your response to redemption this is not some religious word reserved for a building with the steeple and stained glass and pews this is for you to take with you and for it to be the core of who you are And it's my hope in the next few minutes to drive that point home so that when you join me in taking communion, you can rejoice in this idea. 
but redemption can affect every area of your life. I'm going to quickly give you four under this fourth point. Your response can be these. Ephesians 4.32. I quote this verse at almost every wedding I do. It's not necessarily a marriage verse, but it, boy, if you live this out in marriage, this idea of forgiveness, because let me tell you, I need to, I mean, I'm married to Susan. I got to forgive her for all that she does in, in our marriage. Be kind and compassionate to one another. She needs this. Forgiving each other. I'm telling you, she needs it. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. For real, we've been married 21 years. Almost. Because we've been able to do this mutually. And I will tell a bride and a groom standing in front of me. I will look at her and say, you forgive him. Not because you're a queen granting a royal pardon, but because you have been forgiven. You forgive because you have been forgiven. And I will look at that groom in his rented tuxedo and say the same thing. You forgive her because you have been forgiven. And that's what people who have been forgiven do. And that's what Jesus has done for you. So for a moment, I want to ask you. I don't know who exactly this is for, but I think it's for some. How long? Are you going to go angry and bitter and cynical and not forgiving that person? How much longer? And they could be dead. But redemption does that. Not too long ago, someone extended grace to me and I needed it. And it was so kind. It was so compassionate. I'm telling you, it just, it, just, it just went with me. And it, it made it. And it, even now it makes it. Just thinking about it makes it so much better for me to extend it to other people who need it. And it is bondage. It is slavery to not be able to live with a kind and compassionate heart. And to let go of something that needs to be let go of. And it might very well be the hardest human thing to do. But nothing can be more free. Redemption affects your forgiveness. You know what? Redemption affects your finances. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of this as you take communion today in a few moments. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his what? His poverty, you might become rich. This is the passage. It will go on to say that God loves a cheerful giver. And this is what, this is the motivation. I say a lot of times around here, we don't want something from you. We sort of do. But we really want something for you when it comes to your finances. We live what we preach, to give to God, to give this area to him. Redemption affects how you handle things. And you talking about slavery, man, it exists in the room, right? Some of you don't even nod your heads, but it, it hurts, doesn't it? And you're like, preacher, I can't even, how can I give? How can I give to the church? How can I give to help the poor? How can I move us forward when there's so much debt and so much enslavement in my own life? 
And redemption can affect forgiveness in your finances. Redemption can affect your body. Before I read this passage in 1 Corinthians, that's, that's okay. Um, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, let me tell you, I'll try to be discreet when I say this, but this was written to the church at Corinth, and at Corinth you could find anything you wanted. You know what I'm saying? There was houses of prostitution, there was decadence, it was kinky, anything you wanted before the internet, but anything you wanted exists in Corinth. And so what was the church going to be like? Were they going to blend in with culture, or were they going to have a different ethic with their body? And here he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Why? You've been redeemed. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What are the implications of that? Exercise, diet, sleep, sex, all this. You're valuable. Teenagers. Teenagers, young ladies, look at me for a second. Let me enforce what I know the parents want me to enforce right now in this moment, that you are not cheap. You are valuable. And you don't give your body away in a moment. That guy wants to take something, and he wants to rob something from you. And you're valuable. And Jesus died for you. I'm 50. And I've been with one woman my whole life. It can be possible. My life is not over. Let he who stands be careful lest he fall. That's in, that's in Corinthians. That's to the church at Corinth. But I'm telling you, I want to live my life because Jesus died for me. I am bought with a price and I am valuable. And I want to honor him and honor her in how I live. Plus, I'm a dynamic physical specimen. Lastly... <laughs> Beyond forgiveness, beyond our bodies, and beyond our finances, there is, there is leadership. And leadership is not just me. I'm the guy on the stage most of the time here. But listen to this. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. We have been redeemed. So anytime I lag behind in diligence, anytime I lose my spiritual fervor, anytime I grow apathetic or just punching the clock or I think this doesn't matter, I'm brought back to this idea. A shepherd, what does a shepherd do? A shepherd in the word of God leads, feeds, and protects. That's my job here. And other men and women help me here at Fonder. And if you're one of those, I'm preaching to you right now. But we have people around us, people who are here, people who are at their 930, people who are yet to come and be a part of this faith family. And we are to lead Feed and feed and protect and love everybody. You have never looked into the eyes of anybody who doesn't matter to God. People have been purchased, and this affects our leadership. Redemption affects our bodies, our finances, our forgiveness, and our leadership. Now, as we close, I want to ask our worship team to go ahead and make some motion. Don't be distracted by them. They're going to make their way up. You're going to hear some music in a moment. And then a few moments after that, you're going to see some leaders get up all around the, the sanctuary, all around this beautiful room. There will be deacons and folks at stations with bread and wine. And I want to say this because I think a lot of times, you know, this needs to be said. But I would love for you to finish strong this hour. In worship and in focus. And communion at Fondred, it's not just the moment that you dip the, the bread into the, into the cup. 
And by the way, at our 930 service, someone just came and grabbed the cup and drank it at one of our stations. Uh, we don't want you to do that. But as you take the bread and you dip it into the cup, that's not just the moment. The moment begins now. The moment begins when you think about what Jesus did for you. And as you begin to walk behind the person in front of you, and as you take the elements, and as you walk back to your seats, and as you sing, I want this be, to be a time of worship. In your mind, think of the early Jesus followers in this city of Ephesus. You really got to use your imagination. These were early Jesus followers. We don't know yet. We know that they worshipped in temples and we know that they went house to house. They did small groups. When the church started, it started with small groups and people in rows. And this, this sanctuary was built in 1948 by the fine folks at Woodland Hills Baptist. We share the space with them, as you know. One day we'll have it outright. We didn't build it. We moved into it. And maybe this early church of Jesus followers, they were in some temple that they didn't build, but they had converted to Jesus. were following the way of Jesus. And they represented a cross-section of this very diverse city of Ephesus, which I told you is modern-day Western Turkey. And they were diverse, ethically, ethnically I should say. They had Jews and they had Greeks. Economically they had slaves and they had slave owners. They were diverse vocationally. They had tent makers and silversmiths and clothes manufacturers, shipbuilders and drivers, captains and doctors, farmers. Picture a slave, and we'll give him a slave name. We'll give him a name popular in that time, Erasmus. There's a slave, and he has a tattoo on his hand, but the tattoo does not have his name. It has the emblem of Erasmus' owner. Because he is not his own. Somebody bought him. And he hears these words. Paul's letter to them. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Imagine these early Jesus followers were singing sacred songs. They were gathered around the bread and the wine. And these words were read. And there were some slaves who said, I mean, they were moved. And they thought, maybe my core identity is not this emblem on my hand. It's the Holy Spirit in my heart. And most in the room are you're learning about Ephesus and Corinth and first century Palestine. But you know a lot about American history. And y'all, it ain't that long ago when Abraham Lincoln and the Congress of the United States signed the Emancipation Proclamation. To set people free. But the American Negro, the African American, so many had trouble walking in their freedom. And what a shameful blight on our nation's history, in this part of the world especially, to not help people walk in that freedom. And so for you, you, y'all got to let me cry every couple of months. 
But I, I know some of you are not walking in that freedom. And you're ready to give up. And you're waiting for a breakthrough. And you've been bought. You've been purchased. Let me pray.